Merry Christmas, and welcome to a special Christmas edition of The Political Party. This one featuring Alistair Campbell, Ed Balls, and you might even hear a little bit of the phenomenal rock group MP4 in there as well. Um, It was recorded at the Leicester Square Theatre. The atmosphere there was um, incredible. So thank you to all of you who came. It was a very special night. And in terms of raucousness, certainly the most... Um, certainly the most wild at times of any of the shows, of any of these that I've done, Um, and at times as well, very serious. So there's a real mix of slight chaos and then very, very thoughtful political analysis. There have been a few times um, doing these shows where when I've sat opposite the person I'm interviewing, you sort of realise, not that I wouldn't have done beforehand... What a, what a significant figure they are. And that's true of many of the people that I've interviewed. But there was a moment last night when Ed Balls and Alistair Campbell were sat there talking about their period working for Gordon Brown and Tony Blair, respectively. And it struck me that, actually, they've probably never sat down and talked about it in this way. They might not have even ever sat down and talked about it. They might have had small talk backstage at events or on TV shows. But you could tell that, actually... They've never done this before, really. And there was, a, there was, just, a, there was a, just a, a real moment where, as a, as a keen observer of politics, you really felt that you were brought into something very special. Um, there were also lots of very silly moments as well. And, of course, given the events of 2016, um, at home and abroad, there were, some, uh, there were some very thoughtful moments as well. So I hope you enjoy it. It was a real, real thrill to make. Um, and hopefully it means we can do another big Christmas special again next year. Uh, as always, thanks for downloading it and do enjoy. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you. Let's give it up for MP4. Incredible. So much of- Still have been intruding on an office party. Uh, an incredible atmosphere here. Thank you very much all for coming down to a very special night. Uh, fellas, you all, you all ready for Christmas? Absolutely. And what's a Christmas for you guys? Have you had any sort of wild ones in the past? Well, I think the solitary lesson I have, especially for those with children, is don't mix alcohol when you've got young kids on Christmas. When, when our Hannah was a little girl, she wouldn't go to bed on Christmas Eve, and I said... So you got a piss? Taste. <laughs> <laughs> 
Fine. We'll get it to you later. Our members are what the frisky. We get two because we're all still recovering from the all-party frisky group's Christmas party. And famously, there have been MPs that have been arrested at this event. I think there was one who, through Parliament Square, was trying to convince a policeman that he was actually Batman. Uh, where did you get a Batman? Where did you get the Batman costume from, Pete? He's still wearing the top. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if you're Batman, I think Kevin's definitely Robin. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, uh, without further ado, we have uh, a huge first guest in the season. Two, obviously, massive guests. Please, he's been a guest before. He's always fantastic. Give a huge welcome to Alistair Campbell. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Thank you, Matt. <laughs> Good song, though, eh? Right, yeah. Did you get it? Yes. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we'll be hearing more from MP4 uh, just before the break, but for now, we're going to say goodbye to our fantastic Alice Fang. Give it up for MP4! Sounds <laughs> <laughs> like Christmas. Yes. Um, would you do a cracker with me? Go on then. Oh. <laughs> Very violent. Sure. So pop the hat on and read the joke. We get a paper clip to um, keep all your invoices together. <laughs> well, I won't be needing one from tonight. Um, the joke. Have you done a Christmas cracker before? <laughs> what? Oh, do you need your glasses? I think there might be a pair in this, actually. <laughs> what kind of cough medicine does Dracula take? I don't know. What kind of cough medicine does Dracula take? Con medicine. What? I literally don't get that on any level. Am I reading that right? That would be better, coughing medicine. What kind of cough medicine does Dracula take? Con medicine. Con medicine. It's more of a riddle than a joke, isn't it? <laughs> well, there you go. You, you, let's have a go on this one, eh? Have you got your own jokes here, are you, really? <laughs> You've got to wear the hat for a bit. Oh, it's Christmas, come on. Somebody will take a picture and it'll look ridiculous. Oh, here we are. What animal needs oiling? Uh, mice, because they squeak. Oh. Yeah, I think uh, Ian calls you for doing that at the next MP4 gig. Uh, <laughs> So, Alistair, last time you were here... I'm only putting my hat on if you put it on. I'll put it on. <laughs> Feel free to take photos, by the way. The photography allowed. You look great. Thank you. Look how happy you look. Thank you. You know what you look like? This scene looks like the only guy you couldn't pull at the Christmas party. <laughs> look at him, Mr. Miserable over there. Got my chair here. <laughs> got your chair! Just waiting. She's running late. <laughs> Thank you, fucking me. Um... Now, the last time you, you came into the political party show, uh, it ended with you calling uh, a member of the audience a wanker. Oh. Um, is he back? <laughs> well, I don't know. Is he back? No, you've... you've uh, uh, shock. Why, why, why did I? Um, he questioned you about Tony Blair's income. Okay. And his role in the Middle East. Okay. And suggested it was slightly ironic, given his previous role in the Middle East. And, um... You called him a wanker. <laughs> oh, no, that was it. I said I wanted a one-sentence answer, and you went, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a one-word answer. Wanker. <laughs> and you're wearing the same hat as well, which is... Right. Which has really brought an atmosphere. No, it wouldn't have been just for that. 
You probably annoyed me. <laughs> probably looked at you funny. Yeah. <laughs> probably had a girlfriend yeah. or something. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't drape his hand over the chair like this. Um, Pull it closer. Uh, we should say, by the way, during the break, uh, Alistair and Ed will be signing copies of their new books uh, in the foyer during the break and after the show. You can get them uh, um, during the break. And if you buy them. <laughs> well, of course. Otherwise, otherwise, I'll have nothing to invoice for. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from the cab fare. Um, I've paid for that. Oh, no, thank you. Anyway, let's not go into the details of <laughs> me having to pay for Alistair's he's also, got, he's also got a selection box. No. Yeah, yeah. don't start fucking... Yeah, I no, think it's nice. Right. It is nice. And I got you a special book, didn't I? And also, as I'm trying not to eat chocolate at the moment, I'll give my, chocolate, my selection box the best question in the second half. Oh. What are you going to give? Actually, I've got um, two copies of your book to give away. But... Um, <laughs> Certainly not as impressive as the selection box. Exactly. <laughs> now, the one thing I've been dying to ask you since it happened was about that question time appearance of John McDonnell. Because it was... Ooh, it was fairly fruity on stage, but then afterwards, apparently, it, it kicked off, according to certain websites. I mean, how true is the... Websites? Is that the non-MSM? That's right, yeah, the Canary. I think it was in the MSM as well. Yeah. So what actually happened? Um... <laughs> it was all a bit odd, to be honest. It really was quite odd because I am not very good at um... question time. No, I'm very. Good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very, very good at question time, which is why I get asked often uh, once for every eleven appearances by Nigel Farage. <laughs> uh, but what happened was that my daughter uh, is writing a sitcom at the moment Ooh. called Politicians' Kids. And one of her episodes is going to be set in question time. This wasn't the only reason I did it, but, you know. And you probably know that Jeremy Corbyn's son, Seb, is John McDonnell's right-hand man. That's right. So during the programme, as it was being recorded, you had the block, the audience there, and then over there, in this bit, a big empty block, just two people, my daughter and Seb Corbyn, sitting next to each other. And just as Seb, no doubt at the moment, has a lot of sort of, you know stuff going on because his dad's in the public eye and gets a lot of grief in the press and the rest of it. My daughter's had a lot of that all of her life. And so I was really, really, really trying to be nice to John McDonald. <laughs> because, and I really, really, I really, really was trying. I didn't want anything to kick off yeah. with me and him. And I was even, and I'm not very good at this, I was even sort of suggesting that New Labour had been other than completely 100% perfect. Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, I know you don't agree. I know you don't agree. Treachery. I know you don't agree, but I was just sort of... And so I was sort of saying, yeah, we could have done this better, and we did that, that I was really trying. And then suddenly, left field, out of nowhere, this is totally nauseating. And I, I was like, are you talking to me? It was, it was, and then so it just sort of... So afterwards, I said to him, I said, look, you know, you couldn't resist it. And he said, well, you know, why did you side with Anna Subri? I said, well, I didn't. I was actually... And so, yeah, it got a bit... Anyway, fast forward, and my daughter came in and said, Dad, we're going. <laughs> uh, so we went. So what was the... Was, was it like properly squaring up to each other and threatening to take it outside? <laughs> no. No, well, I, I was quite angry. So I'll be John McDonnell and you be you. Right. And okay. I said, bloody hell, Alistair, this is nauseating. There were workers in red coats. 
<laughs> it always seems to bring up in any conversation. I changed my mind when I went to Redka. Yeah, he didn't say that. He said you couldn't resist siding with the Tory. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, bloody Anasubri, I saw it out there. I was sat out there with... And it sounds like, um, what's his face from Bernard Manning. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Fletcher, I don't think there's any need. No, I did, I did question whether he really, really, really wanted to win. What did he say? Oh, yeah, we're going to win. We'll win without you. <laughs> don't, don't you worry, we'll win. Fair enough. Because <laughs> <laughs> I suppose it was, it, was, it, was, it was a literal sort of embodiment of the, of the tensions in the Labour Party, wasn't it, you and him? The two directions that the party could it take. It didn't feel like that. I mean, it was like... I mean, I, I've, I've been very, very clear since Jeremy Corbyn got elected. I, I don't, I really, really can't stand the idea of becoming a kind of rent a quote, going out there just slagging off everything he says and does. Thanks for coming on the show, by the Now that we've got Donald Trump, I don't feel I have to do that. But I think that, you know, we, we keep, people keep saying that what they like about Jeremy Corbyn is that, you know, he's authentic and he's true and he says what he thinks. Well, you don't have a monopoly on that. And I'm authentic and true, and I say what I think, and I find it very difficult not to. Mm. So if I'm, if I'm in a public forum and I'm asked, what do I think the Labour Party needs to do to win, um, I'm not going to pretend that everything's great at the moment, because it's not. SNT here. In terms of Corbyn as an individual... What sort of relationship have you ever had with him? Is it courteous? I guess so. I mean, I, it's really weird that on the day that the, of the election, um, I was down on College Green. Yeah. Uh, Not being a rent quote. <laughs> putting a strategic case <laughs> for what is going on. Now, I remember, I, and I think you know this, I, did not, I was not surprised that David Cameron mm. got a majority. Um, but anyway, most people were. And I was wandering around, and this Radio 5 producer sort of grabbed me and said, can you come and do Peter Allen? I said, yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I, said, I said, what? Can't you get Kevin Maguire? And so... <laughs> <laughs> and any other read to quotes uh, so I go in there and Jeremy Corbyn's sitting there so then they said do you mind doing it with Alistair, do you mind doing it with Jeremy we both said no and I, I, I thought about it a lot because if I just said then when Peter Allen said okay Jeremy, okay Alistair, what happens next if I just said well, what happens next is that Jeremy's going to be the next leader of the Labour Party I'd have been taking that shot <laughs> you're mad and so but he was. And so, yeah, I'd say courteous, but... Um, well, I'll tell you what I felt from the John McDonnell thing. I felt it really quite strongly. I really do believe that he and some of his people loathe us much more than they loathe Tories. Yeah. I really feel that. And I, and, I, and I think it's like... I mean, I thought it was interesting that Anna Subri is sitting there and says, you're a horrible little man. <laughs> you know, I think you're evil. And yet... It's me, how's it go at? For sitting there suggesting it might be a really good thing if the Labour Party really, really, really tried to be obsessed about winning, which I think would be a good thing.
But don't you think that the issue with, 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 with saying that is that when you talk about winning for its own... It sounds like you're talking about winning for its own But ends. I'm not. I'm not. But they think you are. Well, they think you will sacrifice anything to get this power. But I wouldn't. And nor would any of the people that were involved. Nor would have had balls. Nor would any of the other people that were involved. In but the right of the party has sort of ceded that, hasn't it? There is a sort of... That, that argument hasn't been properly put as a fight back. That actually... New Labour values are values in themselves that people genuinely believe in, but well, it's a compromise to win Tory votes. Look, it, it was... I, I never felt... Look, there were times, inevitably, you can't agree with every single thing that you do as part of a, a big team that gets into government for three terms, but most of the time I, I felt completely comfortable with what we were trying to do. And it's just this idea that, you know, we didn't have values, we didn't have principles, we didn't believe what we were doing, we're only doing things to win power. The point we were trying to make the Labour Party see and make the public see is that you don't do anything if you don't have power. You literally don't do anything. And what's more, you watch all this stuff happening and you get angry about it and you sort of you go on protest marches and you sort of wake up every morning and say I'm re and shout at the radio. But what good does it do you unless you're gonna win power? And I, that is not an ideological thing. That's what really do. And so and I, I just think that, we're, that there's an attempt that you've just articulated. I know you don't believe it, but you've just articulated what they say, which is that we were just obsessed with winning. I don't want to win just for the sake of it. I don't want to win just to do what the Tories are doing now. I wanted to win, and the people in the new Labour team wanted to win, to do lots of the stuff that we did. And I don't know who wrote it, but I read this. Somebody sent me this piece today that somebody had written about Northern Ireland. And this whole thing about, you know, um, uh, John McDonnell and to some extent Jeremy sort of mm. talking about their role in the peace process and all the rest of it. And you sort of think, well, you only do things like that if you get into government. You don't do them just by being part of a protest movement. And I, so I, I, I worry about where we are. I worry that we're, we're kind of, we're losing that mentality that says it's really good to try and win. And I, and, I, and I said, the other thing I said to him, John, Donald, do you wake up every single day and think, right, for every minute of this day, I'm going to do all the things I need to do to try to get into a position that we're going to win the people who we've lost? The, the question time was in Salisbury. I can remember we visited Dorset South in 1997. I can remember the journalists saying, this is, a, this is just a stunt. There's no, it was like when Trump went to Michigan and all those places. Oh, is he going there? He's not going to win. We did that in Dorset. You're not going to win in Dorset. We won. Now, the, they make you feel like, what were you doing trying to win there? That's not a Labour area. Yeah. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think happens to the Labour Party now? Because I've talked to people that used to be senior members of staff at the Labour Party, some Labour MPs, who truly believe that this could be like the collapse of the Liberal Party. The, 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 of the Labour Party? Yeah, but the, the old collapse of the oh, Liberal Party. Oh, right, Liberal England, yeah. But this, the, this could be the same level, that the Labour Party actually may not exist as a parliamentary force in 15 to 20 years' time. I hope that's not the case. But I think if you look at, you see, I think it's interesting that Trump winning, Brexit winning, the Corbynista people are sort of saying, well, that shows it, that shows we can do the same. Yeah. Fight, do it against the odds. Well, maybe. But think about it going in the other direction. What it shows. We, no political party has an existential right to exist. And I do worry. I do genuinely worry about where we are now. Because you've been there before during the dark days of the 70s and 80s where people said Labour would never win again. And Labour found a way back and you were yeah. a big part of that. Do you think this is a, a 
a bigger crisis now than it was, say, under Michael Foote? I think it could be. I think it could be. It obviously depends what happens. But I think, I mean, I can remember 1992, Peter Jenkins, the commentator, he and I, on College Green, there's a couple of rent-a-quotes on the day after that <laughs> And I can remember Peter saying, after John Major had just beaten Neil Kinnock, if Labour can't win in this, these circumstances, we have to conclude they'll never win another election. And five years later, we've got a landslide. So you, you, can't, you can't say for sure, but I just, I feel at the moment, you have to, there's no point, what, what did I hear um, yesterday, I hear them, you know, the, all these really, really bad polls, and Jeremy's done an interview, I think, in the New States, and saying, well, that's because we have the year-long thing, you know, the inter-Nissine inter warfare took out the ball, once people, and also the mainstream media are against us, and I'm winning on social media, and da-da-da-da. And I thought, fine, if you're saying that just to sort of make yourself feel better, but it's pointless if you really believe that, because it's not true. You have to listen. And Jeremy probably is going around, because there are a lot of people who like him, and a lot of people are motivated by him. He did bring a lot of people into the party. But if he just goes around talking to those people, and he doesn't get the sense that I get, I mean, look, I'm, I, go, I travel around the country all the time, and you get people just literally coming up and talking to you all the time. And sometimes people do say, why can't you sort of say something nice about Jeremy Corbyn? Sometimes people say, you know, really, really unpleasant things to me. But nine times out of ten, Labour people at the moment are saying, what are we going to do? This is desperate. So how does the Labour Party, your side of the Labour Party, wrestle it back from Corbyn? Because with the model that the Labour Party has of choosing its leader, as long as he has enough members in the, numbers in the membership, they're gonna, you're going to have to get two, three, maybe 400,000 moderate people that are just out there and haven't yet joined the Labour Party to mobilise. Well, when you said, is this wor does this feel worse than the 80s, the, the reason why partly it does is that during that period, I could always sort of feel and see that there was a there was something there that would change it. I mean, I, I could envisage a situation, I don't want to, but I could envisage a situation where the Tories get back in and get back in quite comfortably and Jeremy just thinks, oh, well, go again, or Donald will do it, or Diane Abbott, or, you know, and I Ooh. think it's... We're <laughs> <laughs> very cold, very quickly. Seance when you mentioned uh, those names. But, you know, so, so it obviously a lot depends on... That's where you, you can't accurately predict. But I do feel at the moment that, that we're... You have to, the, one of the things I think we did always try to do, no matter what you're trying to project in terms of a confident public posture, one thing... I can remember Philip Gould and I, we used to have this weekly meeting. We'd sit down, and on the agenda was one item. If we were the Tories... And we knew what we know about ourselves. What would we do about it? Mm. Which is not a bad way to think of things, because you're in a fight with them. That's who you're fighting. And I just, I just, I just don't get that sense that, that they do have that same zeal and hunger and desire. And it's interesting, you know, when Jeremy's had his two leadership elections on, you've seen the zeal, you've seen the hunger, you've seen the fight, you've seen the organisation. Yeah. Since it's felt a bit. Because people are looking for individuals, aren't they? People who perhaps may have served before, um, maybe former leaders of parties that might um, choose to play a role again. And um, I just thought, uh, Tony Blair's name has been mentioned uh, as someone who might... I mean, he's, he himself is gearing up, isn't he, for something. Are you involved in that? <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> yeah. So what is it? He's got a lot of money. <laughs> he's gonna he's gonna help me buy a Premier League football club. Or <laughs> <Paul> Burnley. <laughs> no, I'll tell you what he's gonna do. He, I think I think I think it's sad the way that Tony is perceived. Uh, because one there's two things that go on. One they the, the player haters want to say all he ever did was Iraq. And that was 100% of the people in the entire world think that was the worst mistake that any politician has ever made. And the second thing they want to say is that all he's ever done since he left office is go and get himself rich and he doesn't care about the world anymore. And none of those things are true. Um, yes, he's made a lot of money. He employs 250 people. A lot of them worked pro, on big pro bono projects in some of the poorest parts of the world. You never, ever, ever hear or read about them in MSM or indeed on SM uh, because you're not allowed. It's just not the done thing, social media. Uh, <laughs> I know we're in Soho, but, you know, it's not that. Uh, it's just not the done thing to say anything nice about Tony Blair, ever in any polite company. You might as well fart very loudly. <laughs> so, I often do bugs. Yeah, I'm sure you do. I'm sure you do. I heard you in the dressing room. Uh, but so what I think, the, the thing about, what, what I do think, you see, I think when Tony left office, I think for the right reasons, he vacated the field. He left it to Gordon. I think it was the right thing to do. And what it meant, though, is that he, he kind of, he left the definition of him. Um, and then all these stories, relentless in the mail, the telegraph, elsewhere about his money, his money, his money, his money. I think that has had a bit bad impact upon how he's perceived. But I see him as, yes, he, of course he has a nice lifestyle and he goes around on private planes and all that. But I see him doing public service in a different sort of way. And I think what he feels, what, this thing that you were talking yeah. about, I think he feels that he vacated the domestic political debate too much. And given his experience, and given his insight, and given his knowledge, he needs to make more of a contribution in that. It does not mean he's going to stand for Parliament. And it's not going to be a think tank. So what is it? It'll have staff, but what will it do if it's not a think tank and it's not a movement to get some elected? Um, or not to get him elected? It'll do all sorts of different things. It will be part of policy, policy debate. I think it's supporting different people. I think one of the, I think one of the best things about the, the Labour Party is that there are for all the kind of negativity and all the faults, there are loads and loads and loads of young people who are getting involved and getting into the Labour Party. I know that Tony sees a lot of the younger MPs now, and of course, every, when that gets out there, it's all, all plotting against Jeremy, da, da, da. Often it's actually about trying to find out who, where the talent lies and who's got ability and who's, who's having interesting arguments, who's coming up with things. And, and I do that as well. I think, you know, I think all of us have a responsibility to sort of put something back and part of that is trying to bring talent on. Because so, that's something we didn't do very well. So it's kind of academy for MPs, where they can sort of go and improve and <coughs> become better. No. no so do you, do you talk to him much? Yes. And, and he would just ring you how often? Um, regularly. <laughs> so you get phone call and say, Hi, Alistair. Um, just... <laughs> He's actually one of the few people who I'm afraid who calls me Ali, which is sort of... Ali? Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so you go, oh, hi, Ali. He doesn't, because it's... 
No, he doesn't do that. Ali. No. Ali, Ali, Ali. He says, Ed Balls is looking at his photo, though he's bored. He said, uh, he says, hi, it's me. And you say, hi, Tony. He says, look, about this thing that's not a think tank, that's not an academy, that's more about you getting elected. Um, <laughs> he doesn't, whatever it is. He doesn't feel he has to explain it. It's always <laughs> No one's like, going to explain like Donald Trump with the intelligence. He doesn't have to read it every day to see the same thing. Because <laughs> <coughs> I'm really smart as well, you see. Like, I know what Tony's going to say before he's said it. Um, <laughs> so then he'd say, look, it'd be great if you could be involved in whatever it is. That, you know, obviously, you don't need to explain it because we're on the same page. And, uh, <laughs> that's fine. Uh, <laughs> But I'll tell you what, how, you take your hat off. How are you doing with the hat? Mine fell off. Uh, mine's going off. Well, I think we should. Uh, I think we should introduce our, our second. <coughs> do, I, do we do Parkinson's? Do I move up now? If that's okay, yeah. That's fine. Um, are you two going to be okay? Yeah, we're good. Okay. <laughs> so I was slightly worried when I booked you together. Uh, was that volume one or volume two or volume three or volume four? Volume five is really good, being it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well let's let's start on volume one and we can sort of reenact the ages. <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have uh, a, a phenomenal second guest again. Uh, been a, a star on the show before, as well as being one of the most defining uh, politicians of the New Labour era, has gone on to be a genuine showbiz star. He's an absolute hero. Please give me a huge welcome to Ed Ball. <laughs> Big hug. Big hug. Big hug. In um, volume three. <laughs> in Strictly, we hug anybody. <laughs> I actually, um, I have to admit, I was standing behind there on my phone. I was just um, finding out why have the Burnley. <laughs> Norwich won on there. Uh, we lost. I know, that, I was just checking that, so then I thought I then wouldn't bring it up. <laughs> yeah, but this will be cool, because there, were, there must have been a period, actually, where you two were kind of rivals, or working for rivals, and, and what was your relationship like at the peak of what they called the TBGBs? <laughs> it was, uh, it was, was a bit high. <laughs> it was fine, most of the time. I don't think we ever had a bad row. So there were rounds. Yeah. Not really. I um, think the thing, the thing was... <laughs> I'm, I'm going to tell you what I think. <laughs> I thought it was our job to try and make it work. And most of the time we didn't do too badly. I, the one I had trouble with was Charlie Wheeler, as you know. Is oh. uh, yeah. he here as well? <laughs> no, but come on, cows. <laughs> And no, my I, next guess. <laughs> no, you're right. No, I, I, I think I think Ed and I didn't fall out. Uh, but it was very, very difficult when the Tony Gordon thing was bad. It was. No doubt about that. And have you, sort of, as, as individuals or people who've worked on both sides of that divide, ever sort of sat down and talked about it until now, exclusively lying on the <laughs> podcast? We um. We went out to that um, that fish restaurant in Covent Garden. We did. Live, 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 yeah, we did. Live yeah, we did. And um, so yeah, we had some. And then we went to our therapist. Uh, <laughs> and then Alistair gave me a number, and I signed up with it. This therapist has been really useful. Well, that's good. I wasn't sure if you were joking or not. Yeah. I'm a therapist. Yeah. No. 
<laughs> I wasn't. No, I'll tell you, what, I, you remember the Class of 92 film? Yes. The guy who made that, Gabe Turner, who was a friend of mine, and he came to see me and he said, listen, I've got this great idea to follow up to Class of 92. Class of 97. Uh, you lot, Tony Gordon, Hugh Mandelson, get you all round like, like the Neville Brothers and the Scotland, yeah, yeah, yeah. sit around the table. <laughs> and anyway, I phoned up your mate, Tony, mm. what you're doing. <laughs> He said, are you not completely? <laughs> <laughs> it's sad, though. It wouldn't happen. It wouldn't happen. Don't you think even time he would? And Gordon would have said, absolutely not. There's <laughs> <laughs> this one of Alistair's <laughs> crazy ideas. <laughs> I've still not forgiven that briefing to the Observer in 1998. <laughs> 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 Psychological flaws. These guys, these guys. But that was the one, wasn't it? What they're doing. <laughs> so how would how would Gordon talk about this is great? How would these guys, these guys, <laughs> is that what they're doing? That's what he'd say. And and how would how would Tony talk about Gordon's it was always, it was always Campbell. <laughs> yeah, but when it came to his election, he said, can you come and help me? I did. Thank you. No, that's, I think that's really important though, in, in all the elections. Um, there were tensions in the election campaign, but I don't actually remember in 2001, 2005, there being tensions between the core people. Um, we got on with it. Uh, the big tension in 2005, volume 5, <laughs> was, the, uh, was Gordon, Alan Milburn, Gordon yeah. not wanting really to be part of it, unless he had a pretty clear signal about what was going to happen in the third term. Well, but also, in the previous September, Gordon had been sort of ditched in favour of Alan. I think he'd be ditched. I think Alan would be brought in. <laughs> <laughs> I think Alan would be brought in to help put together. 2004 would be a rocky summer. He was, Gordon was the Chancellor of the Exchequer. He was busy. Right. We had, <laughs> we had to have somebody preparing the campaign. I spent the. Um, I, I'm not sure if it's in the, your diaries. But I spent. Um, <laughs> I spent. I spent. About two and a half hours um, walking around a zoo uh, in Keswick in the Easter of 2005 with these long conversations, I think with you, certainly with Philip, all about how we were going to I've never been to a zoo in Keswick. No, I was in the zoo on the phone um, with this whole long conversation about how we would find a way to get Gordon to come back in right. and to make it, to and make we it did. good again. And, and we, we did. did, exactly, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. So we solved a problem which people had created the previous September. <laughs> <laughs> or indeed, <laughs> 11 years earlier. Does this feel cathartic for you both? I think we're beyond catharsis, aren't we? We're, yeah. we're kind of, it's all. Yeah. I mean, we can talk quite openly about it because it's <coughs> both really important, but there's also humour in it, and we all came out the other side. It's fine. I, I don't think it's totally fine. The difference is, I wrote a book which was how I felt about it afterwards, whereas you've got these bloody diaries which are I know, contemporary. I know, so but you I keep on to read what you thought ten years ago. I've forgotten that. I know, time. but I st I st I'll tell you what I do think. I still, <coughs> I, I still feel, back to the Class of 92 yeah. thing, if we, the whole New Labour lot, all of us, I know this is impossible, this idealistic, but if we all had been able to operate at our best, at our most united, all the time, we'd still be there. <laughs> <laughs> 
You're totally right. I believe yeah. it. And actually, to be... Um, and I fundamentally blame Tony and Gordon for that. Because actually, they were the big guys who'd been around a long time, and um, they should have seen that they were stronger together um, than being pulled apart. And the reality was, what happened was, because we had a landslide in 97, and then in particular, because the Tories collapsed so badly after 2001, and they end up, it's actually, there's an important parallel with what's happening now in politics. <laughs> if the opposition collapses and becomes very weak, yeah. and that's what happened within Duncan Smith, the only story in town becomes the argument within the governing party, and, you know, if you had a prime minister who's been there quite a long time, it becomes about succession. And so there was continually people positioning, was it going to be Gordon, was Gordon going to be stopped? And, um, and that was because the Tories were too weak. And Theresa May, you know, I think needs a stronger opposition if she's to stop the biggest story being the divisions in the Conservative Party. But Gordon and Tony should have gone top of that, and they, they didn't. Both of them. Yeah. Well. Equally, I'm not taking sides. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm going to take sides a bit. Uh, I, I, so you're not over it? No. <laughs> not totally, no. No, I'll tell you why, because I, look, I, I think that one of the things that people have been saying recently about you, in fact, Fiona said it the other day about your know, Strictly stuff. She said, you know, and I, I was making the point, and I've said this to Matt, that I think it's, uh, it says something bad about our political culture and our media culture that you're actually the same person as you always were, but you go and do a TV programme like that, and only when you do something like that can people say, oh, he's showing a human side. Well, he's always had a human side. And so I think that what I, my whole thing about the reason I think diaries are a good way of saying what politics is like, I, I, I think it's really important to all politicians and human beings all the time. These guys play this music. I mean, they don't have to do it. They've got interests outside politics like we all have. But the point I think about Tony and Gordon as human beings, I don't think Gordon ever really accepted that Tony was, should have been leader of the Labour Party in 1994. I think that, I think that was the, 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 the starting of the kind of issue was there. I think Tony was incredibly tolerant for lots of it. And he ultimately he had to make a decision. He only could only do one of two things, sack him or keep him. And I, I said in somewhere recently that I, I sometimes I think, this is why I'm, it's not just not being over it, but I don't always know the answer or the answer changes. Sometimes I think he should have done. Most of the time I think he shouldn't. Uh, and I, think, I just think it's sad that we couldn't hold together. And actually, Gabe Turner is, I think, never ever going to be able to make that film. Well, hopefully uh, one day we'll, we'll leave it there for now. Uh, we're going to uh, take a break and we'll be back. But before we take a break, please welcome back on MP4. Yeah. <laughs> for a very special, very special song, this. Uh, we're going to play, uh, it's the song that is for the Joe Cox Memorial Trust, isn't it, Ian? That is released tomorrow uh, on iTunes. Um, <laughs> We're going outside. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm not going unless Matt comes. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll stand in between the barrier. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. Oh, <laughs> He's not too deep to get his ass kicked. Right. Um, Ian, uh, explain to us what the song is. Okay, the uh, song is a, a Rolling Stones classic, uh, You Can't Always Get What You Want. It's available on iTunes and Amazon tomorrow. And if you buy it, it might be Christmas before one. Yeah. And all the money is going to the Joe Cox Foundation. All of the artists who performed on that did it for free. Uh, we've got uh, David Gray, 
Ricky Wilson, Steve Harley and Katie Tunstall perform on the, and the Parliamentary Choir. They're not here tonight. They're not here tonight, no. <laughs> and uh, Mick Jagger and Keith Richard have just said today that they're not going to take any publishing out of it as well, so that money will go to the Joe Cox Foundation as well. I saw her today at the reception So please give it up for Mr. Kevin Brennan, Mr. Ian Corsi, Sir Greg Knight, and Pete Wishart. First, we've got special walk-on music for Alistair Campbell and Ed Balls. Gentlemen, uh, a lot of sign of the books in the break. Good for business. Very good. Excellent stuff. Uh, in fact, um, there's a lot of Alistair's left, but mine are all sold out. <laughs> <laughs> well, two things. One, he sold out years ago. <laughs> and, and two, my, my publisher's more professional than his, so he sent a hundred. <laughs> Sorry, Ed. Bloody penguin. <laughs> What's your publisher called? Ian Bite, Bite, back. Bite Back. How appropriate. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> I, was slightly worried, back. I was slightly worried in the break there that maybe the tension had no, spill no. over, but it's all cool. We're okay. all fine, Matt. Don't worry. No, because it's fascinating to watch, and actually, it, 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 only, it was only watching you two talk at the end of the first half there that it really dawned on me that so rarely do you see people who are leading players in such a, a momentous part of history just sat down talking about it in a funny way, in a civil way, or at all. Bastard. <laughs> no, but it's good. To, it's actually. It, I think this is massively reassuring about seeing you two go through this. Good. <laughs> so Ed, um, you're now a, a showbiz star. Uh, the, the last time we spoke, you were still on Strictly, um, and sadly you left. There must have been a point where you start to believe you could win it. <laughs> the um, the algorithm was against me. <laughs> the um, the way it works is that uh, as it becomes smaller and smaller, the um, the number of contestants in, if you're bottom of the leaderboard, it's basically really really bad. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, it probably won't, can never be enough. So in the end, um, we were. I was at the Norwich City um, AGM a couple of weeks ago. I was chairing the uh, the AGM. Uh, we. Um, beat Aston Villa on Tuesday. Did you win all this? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and somebody um, from the, because we had, you know, a, 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 
about a couple of weeks, and somebody from the audience, there's 600 people, I'm sitting there with the chief executive and the manager, says, you know, Ed, you in the last few weeks on Strictly have performed with passion, endeavour and commitment. What have you got to teach the team? <laughs> <laughs> and it was a bit embarrassing, but I then pointed out to him that um, I was bottom of the table every week for 10 weeks. <laughs> And, the, and the, the football team was still sixth at the time, so actually um, it was sort of the other way around. They got the stuff to teach me. But. I mean, there were so many phenomenal weeks that you gave us on Strictly, but I think the, my favourite, and I think it's one of the best things I've ever seen, was you doing Gangnam Style. <laughs> it was... and, and you'll be, um, be pleased to know if you tune in on Saturday night for the final, um, Gangnam Style will be reprieved. Yeah! <laughs> another, another, another version of it. It was... Um, the, the funny thing about that routine was that, um, I mean, look, to be fair to this guy, um, to be fair to this guy, Sai, he, um, he's had two, he's had, um, or whatever his name is, he's had um, two and a half billion hits on YouTube, so it was a good song, do you know what I mean? There was, you know, it was good material we were working with, but... Um, but were you familiar with the song before you did it for the dance? I think we were, actually. I think a lot of people were quite familiar with it. Yeah. But uh, on the... Um, <laughs> but were you? And you heard it? Was I? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was oh, I heard it, but I was, I was, I was of course. you had. Definitely. And, um, <laughs> and on the Monday, Katya said to me, it's going to be epic, <laughs> the choreography. And then, because the way it works in the week, I think I said when I was with you a few weeks ago, that you'd film the, um, uh, the, uh, the, the day's routine and take it home and show... Um, the family when you go home and, I, and that bit where you do the jump uh, which we call the pony um, people who saw it during the week were going to go oh, what? And the, but the actual interesting thing about it for those of you kind of interested in the technicalities of the dance is, um, the way it works is I mean, to be fair to Katya she's got a very strong core as you may have noticed but um, in order for her to um, grab hold I have to jump quite hard onto her face and um, <laughs> and, and she and, and uh, you take that bit home as well yeah. <laughs> actually a, a friend of mine Balshu was working with me actually ran Kathy to say are you sure this is okay but, um, but the biggest problem I had was that um, I was not giving it enough energy and therefore it was harder to hang on so you know so she would yell at me she'd say you've got to jump at me harder <laughs> so I did but it, <laughs> did it ever go wrong? That jump? Yeah. No. There were many things which went wrong, but not that one. Because and a lot of the dancing is you're in close proximity with the person you're dancing with. Uh, and I've heard some of the professional dancers on Strictly say that some of the male contestants that they dance with, sometimes it's obvious that they've sort of warmed up. <laughs> Was that a problem you ever had? Sort of? Well, I did tell you um, my um, the problem I had very early on because okay. I, I, I learned. He's not um, saying no, is he? <laughs> I learned um, quite a lot about showbiz, which I didn't know when I, um, you know, from the old political world. And so, in the very first week, we have this um, photo call we have to do um, in Elstree. Me and Katya, we had to do like twenty or thirty. And it was the photos they used for all the publicity, and so they got all very prepared. And the thing about Strictly is the production values are amazing. So each of us have, the two of us, takes about two hours to do, take these photos. And each of us has our own makeup person, our own hair person, and our own clothes person. And between every shot, the director goes, check. And they all come out, all six, and just sort you out. 
And, um, the, and for catching, it was all quite complicated, but for me, it wasn't that, that much. But there was a lot of dust in the room, and there was this guy would come out with this thing to take the lint off. Oh, a lint roller? Yeah, a lint roller. Yeah. So, um, and so about, about halfway through, halfway through, he hadn't come out, and I said, excuse me, I said, can I just have the fluffer? <laughs> and, uh, and there was this silence. Fuck, right. The director said, what? <laughs> I said, can I have the fluffer back? The guy who takes the fluff off. And they said, you've not done much television or film before. And I said, no. They said, this is a pre-watershed show. Nobody has ever asked for a fluffer before I've seen some dancing. And I had to go off afterwards and Google it. I had absolutely no idea. Do you know what a fluffer is? Yeah. He was so close. Of course you do. Of course you do. The Riviera is like alive. Of course you do. So, um, so anyway, so because you know, it's important to rise to the challenge on Strictly Come Down. And I did my best. So you googled Fluffer, I mean, I was... and then discovered that I didn't need one. <laughs> it was, I just needed the guy with the roller. That's all I needed. It'd be a great item on a TV show, Ed Balls' Internet History. <laughs> t- tweeting your own name and then Googling hardcore porn. Um, so since Strictly... It was a journey. <laughs> At the time, you were, you were riding the Christopher Wave, and it, it was phenomenal, because the public really got behind it in a way that... And I don't think it's even the fact that, just because I'm interested in politics, but you were one of the defining TV moments of the year. I think that's absolutely fair to say. After Strictly, has there been a sort of any sense of come down from that? I think I... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it. <Yeah>. It. <laughs> <laughs> I paused. I paused thinking, come on, do the line, do the line. <laughs> I, um... I don't think so. There, there was um, a lot of publicity afterwards still. We did, did a lot more interviews. I went out to America last week. I go out to Harvard to do where I'm a fellow, to be my other American fellows, and all they wanted to talk about was the char char bloody char. <laughs> They're all watching it on, on, on YouTube, so I've not managed to escape from it yet. And, um, and as you know, we're um, Saturday. And then um, in January and February, I'm doing a um, 30 date arena tour. <laughs> because. Why wouldn't you? Back in, um, back in August, there was, I mean, I, I never even read that bit because it was optional. I was never going to do it. But then um, after we did Gangnam, and you suddenly think to yourself, you could go and do that pony moment in the O2 in front of 20,000 people, and they're all going to enjoy it. And so we're doing, the, we're playing, you know, arenas around the country. I mean, I mean as, as a child, I mean. What's happened to my life? <laughs> as I said to you, um, uh, as I said to you in a hose on before, there was this fabulous moment where we were, um, Katya was having a row with her husband about who was making the dinner or something, and we're all standing round, and I was, um, we were doing a bit of VT in a gym in Paddington, and we're standing there doing this sort of film thing, and I'm dressed as a mad scientist with all my hair and black towel in a white coat, standing there while she's having this row on the phone, and I turned to um, the director and said, um, I wanted to be Chancellor. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, I've, had, I've, had, I've had quite a lot of moments like that where you just think... Mm. <laughs> so, 
There we are. <laughs> what, what, I mean, there's nothing to say, is there, really? No. I'm I, being... say, I cannot see Philip Hammond on Strictly Come Well, you know. <laughs> Would you ever do it? No. Oh, you do it. I wouldn't, I'm sorry, That's no. That's what I said. Yeah, no, but I, I mean, I don't want to hurt you, but they did ask me eight times before they got you. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. And uh, you never had the guts? No, I wouldn't. Oh. <laughs> no, I wouldn't do it, I wouldn't do it. He's, he's very jerky, he wasn't really asked. Were you asked? I was, yeah. Oh, right. I would do it. I wouldn't, in fact, and Claudia, yeah. Tess, last night said I was their number one choice to be next year. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently, yeah. From television. But aren't you already booked to... Presenting the bake-off. No. <laughs> <laughs> the only reality. Are we not saying about that? <laughs> the, the only reality TV I've done. I've done backstage chats. <laughs> I've done. I've done comedy like relief. Fake news. Boom. <laughs> 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 fake news. Boom. <laughs> I've done the Apprentice comic relief version. Got Piers Morgan. Yeah, I remember that. that. Fun. Uh, <laughs> I've done the. Soccer aid, yeah. and I did that to play with Maradona, which I talk about every single day of my life, and I was well. Did you write a column about that last week? I did. I, yeah. <laughs> I do most weeks. Um, but no, I just couldn't. I, I wouldn't do it. No, I couldn't do it. But what would you Would you go in the jungle? No. No way. But Celebrity Big Brother? No. Normal Big Brother? I don't. I've got to. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> now you're talking. <laughs> No, I wouldn't do anything. I wouldn't. How about Sports Relief oh. Bake Off? Maybe. Sports Relief. Yeah, the chat. That's how they get you. They get you for the charity ones, right? That's fine. But... Yeah. Do you have cold fingers or warm fingers? I've never seen it. I'm sorry to say that. I've never seen it. I actually... I'm going to lower the tone here. I'm going to, I'm going to lower the tone here. I'm going to lower the tone here. I, I don't like this reality TV stuff. And I never have. Oh, come I'm on. Sorry, I never have. And I'll tell you what... There's somebody think, agrees with you over there. I think it's... Yeah, but I'll tell you. I think it's one of the reasons... We have got, I'm not blaming you, Ed, it's one of the reasons <laughs> we now have a fucking celebrity Celebrity split over this even. Right. <laughs> Donald Trump. Uh, it's all part of the same thing. People think that it's important to vote in a strictly come down season than it is to vote in an election. I'm sorry, I don't like it. So I won't do it. Sorry. And I hate Christmas as well. <laughs> See, that's fascinating. Why do you hate Christmas? What happened? I don't. Is that when she left? <laughs> As Alistair would say, he's not denying it. <laughs> Why do you hate Christmas? You can't hate I Christmas. I don't. That was a joke. Made them laugh. <laughs> I, I knew it was a joke. He was carping about it on the way here, so he hated Christmas. You hate Christmas? I don't hate Christmas. It wasn't a joke. Okay. I tell you that, this must be so hard for you tonight. It's Rory Bremner sitting there, and he's a proper impersonator. Oh, here we go! <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, hey. Come on, let's get it going. <laughs> In your book, Ed, there's a, there's, a, there's a wonderful story about you going into uh, the Department for Children's Schools and Families after you've been Secretary of State. So Gove's in there now. And you're allowed to go through the files, like why they cancelled Building Schools for the Future, which was the Academy Building Programme. And there's a bit in the book where you say... There was sort of secret correspondence in this file that you, you're not sure whether they planted it there, there's some sense for you to read, but you read it anyway. Was there no point during that sort of search that you were worried you'd get caught? I think, um, yes. 
<laughs> so what had happened was, Michael Gove had cancelled building schools for the future straight after the election and told this whole series of schools around the country who had done, gone through a massive planning process they weren't going to have a new school built. And we had got the approval because we thought that actually people still doing that kind of infrastructure investment where the economy was still really weak was a good thing. And, um, and he then accused me of having gone ahead with these projects without treasury agreement, which I didn't think was true. And so I then said to the permanent secretary, can I come into the department, as you can, to look at the papers to check. And I went in to the permanent secretary's office when Michael Gove was the secretary of state to look through these papers. And in within them, there's a whole series of emails between Michael Gove and his special advisors where he basically says, that they're worried there's going to be judicial review against their decision to cancel and how they're going to handle it. And, um, I mean, it would, be, it would have been quite a slip for them to have been put in there in error. But I didn't know who'd put them in there, and I didn't know what to do, and so I just did extensive notes. <laughs> if, I, if I'd had an iPhone, I would have probably taken photos, but it was pre that era. And, um, and, then, and then we did um, say that Michael Gove was worried about the first judicial review, and he did get judicial reviewed, and, you know, he, um, he, he, um, he won and they cancelled all the schools. But yeah, I did. it's a really funny thing because you don't know, when you've basically been presented with a leak in those circumstances, you don't know what the right thing to do is and whether it was, I'm worried about whether it was a trick, um, but we were, we were fairly confident it wasn't. And I think in the end, you know, you've come out of government and you're trying to persuade um, the government to change their minds and in those circumstances, this was, you know, it felt to be, uh, to be uh, a legitimate. And um, so he was Secretary of State and I won Parliamentarian of the Year, but it was a little compensation. <laughs> because one of the things that he's recently admitted to was that it was a mistake from his council, Building Schools for the Future, which many people at the time were, were sort of telling him. Do you think he did it just out of sort of political spite? I don't know. I think um, at the time there was, there was almost a competition between them to be to be to be macho, mm. and um, I what Theresa May was like. announcing macho. <laughs> <laughs> we were sorry, we were delivering record investment in schools, hospitals, and police <laughs> at the time. But if you remember, Theresa May had the biggest police cuts ever, and the biggest cut in the prison building program, and the biggest cut in the school building program, and I I think that um, they were trying to prove some. So I think it was quite macho, and I think it was pretty stupid. Um, they were also doing this thing where Theresa May was, had a very anti-police message, Gove oh. had a very anti-teacher message, yep. and Hunt had a very anti-health worker message. It was incredible. That's right. Deliberate strategy. And it's not as ongoing. So. Well, that's really brought the tone down a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I have to accept my responsibility. I, I took the question in, in that direction. It's a very serious question. Um, one, one of the things that um, is very tantalising about, you mentioned in your book, is going to the Bilderberg group. Um, because that is a, a, a sort of group apparently steeped in mystery, very secretive, and all uh, types of powerful people from around the world go. You speak very defensively about it in the book. Do you think people are right to be slightly cynical about what happens there? I think, um, well, I think the, the, the idea of some big conspiracy is um, a nonsense. But um, of course people are going to be cynical or suspicious of anything, whether or not on the inside. And the, the reality was that... Um, I went a few times in the early 2000s and a couple of times, and the people who went from Britain, when I was in opposition, and the people who went from Britain were um, uh, Ken Clark, Peter Manderson, me, George Osborne, and seven. <coughs> Some lizard guy. guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it was sort of, 
it was it was it was quite right of centre in terms of its orientation, and I think um, <coughs> it's quite nice to be on the inside of those things and see how people talk and how they. You know, if you sit in a room where Henry Kissinger is saying what he thinks about the Middle East peace process and it's, and it's not made public, you actually um, if you want to understand these guys, it's quite good to go and see it first hand. Do you think there has to be a level of secrecy when people like that get together, or would it? Well, if it was on the record, it wouldn't happen. If it was public, it wouldn't happen. Um, but there was also 150 people there, so it wasn't exactly though it was exactly, you know, it wasn't secretive. It's, and every year it happens. It has done. It's one of those things which happened after the Second World War um, to try and bind America back into Europe again. There's a whole series of these different ones. That's going well. <laughs> I never saw Donald Trump there. I don't think he ever came. And um, uh, every year they make public what the agenda is and who goes, but they don't. But it's not a public thing. If it, if it, if it's, um, to be honest, I never thought it was that big a deal until the conspiracy stuff happened a couple of years ago, and, and then they stopped inviting me. <laughs> Bastards. Well, there's this whole um, <laughs> apparent ritual where a giant owl is burned. John Ronson talks about it in his book. What? Yeah, a, whole, a, a giant owl is burnt. Yeah, there's, a, there's an effigy of an owl that gets burnt in a forest. Edward invited that there. <laughs> <laughs> so when they kept doing that with their hands. <laughs> 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 it's a really powerful Masonic lodge. Um, so naive. In terms of Trump, then, because this is the, really breaks into Trump within the two defining issues of the year. Um, how much do you despair about the outcome of both of those elections? More than I did on the election night. And I felt pretty bad election night because actually, you know, there was this when he um, clearly was going to win the Republican nomination, he actually did a quite consensual um, speech back in um, April, May, uh, just after Ohio. Um, and um, but actually, his cabinet appointments seemed to be, you know, much more extreme and less consensual and more crazy than than, than, than I was hoping for. And so it feels as though um, the, the one thing we knew. Was that it was going to be about a very uncertain time because he's so unpredictable, but the people he's choosing to appoint um, are, are, are worse than I expected. So I feel I felt pretty bad on election night, but I feel worse now. And Alistair, you, you worked with George W. Bush, who at the time was really ridiculed, and I always thought a lot of that ridicule was unfair. Now in Donald Trump, there is someone actually who genuinely is as bad as people fear, it seems. If you were working, if there was a Labour government in this country now, what would you advise them to do in terms of dealing with Donald Trump? Well, I thought Angela Merkel got the tone absolutely right on the day he won. She, she made it about values. Uh, and I thought when Trump came out and said Nigel Farage should be our ambassador to the UK. Really? Fantastic piece I read yesterday from the, on the, uh, from the Atlantic. Uh, now these psychiatrists guys, they shouldn't really do psychiatric analysis of people in public life, I don't think, but this guy was brilliant. And it was basically about Trump. And it was building the case that he is a genuinely sick narcissist. And the worry I have about Trump is everything, large and small, is about him and how it affects him. I came out tonight, the last, I've, I've become obsessed, I've got to stop looking at his, twi his Twitter feed. And he did a tweet tonight saying that Vanity Fair circulation figures are a joke 
And what's the name? Graydon Carter, whatever his name is. He's mm. got to lose his job. About time too. And I'm thinking, he's tweeting about the editor of a magazine being unfit to be the editor. And, all, and, as, and as Ed says, these appointments, they're terrifying. I mean, you know, and it's all about, so, so like the Taiwan thing. Now, maybe he didn't know, that's bad enough, but maybe he didn't know, he does the call, and rather than saying then, oh, well, maybe I should have done that, he feels, well, I have to defend that because I did that. And therefore he starts doing all this stuff attacking China. And I'll tell you, I can remember, if you see, the next time you see your mate Tony Blair, <laughs> when we first met Vladimir Putin in 1997, I remember Tony saying, he's all right, he's all right, we'll get on with him. And that's Trump's stance at the moment. Yeah. And Putin will run with him. Uh, and, and I just think it's becoming a kind of international, global joke. But it's not funny. It's really, really serious. And I'm, I'm actually quite scared about it. The thing, the thing um, I, I was out at, um, in the US last week, and after the election, they have this sort of day where they get, up to Harvard, they get all of the campaign and media people from both sides, and they came. And it was actually quite a big bust-up event, quite a difficult event, I think. Interestingly, Harvard had this big debate about whether or not they should ban there's a big student demonstration saying they should ban the Trump campaign from even coming to the meeting because they were racist and people wouldn't feel comfortable in their presence. And I don't think that's the right response. But the thing which I thought was really chilling in the reports of it was that at key moments, um, the Trump advisors were explaining, the, the basic advisors, that at key moments they would advise him to take a particular course, and then he himself personally would choose to take the absolute opposite course. Mm. So do you remember the, the one they had where he was um, he was um, very offensive about a um, a judge who was um, you know, um, uh, ethnic minority? I can't remember exactly what the um, what, Mexican. sorry Mexican. That's right. And um, and his, the advisors all said they advised him to go out and apologise immediately. And Trump personally just decides sod that he goes out and sort of and does the opposite. He he reinforces the message and is even more hostile. And um, he did, so, it, he did it with that war hero, he did it with... I just, I use all those guys who can't back down. Um, even when advised, he goes and does the opposite. And that, that's a complete nightmare, because then the guy's completely... And now this thing, you know, he's got this thing that, that Kellyanne Conway's on television today saying that it'd be really good if you had Ivanka and her husband in the White House in an official capacity. I mean, if that was like an African dictatorship, we'd all be saying this is just unbelievable what they're thinking of this, but they're thinking of it and they're going to do it. But if you were working for a British Prime Minister and you had to deal with President Trump, I would follow the Merkel handbook. But one to one if you met him, how would you still You've deal? got to try to get on with it. Yeah. You've got to try to get on with it. Yeah. But, but I think but, but, but don't but don't pander. But if you were in a working relationship with a guy like him, you couldn't last with you. You couldn't stay in that that relationship even if even if um you were being a hard gun, because if at the end there's not a sense of commonality and he doesn't listen, he just does his oh, own no. thing, then you have to get out straight away. And the interesting thing will be who's actually willing to go and work with him. That's so important in the American system. And the answer is um, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I fear. They're the only ones that are going to do it. Mildly inappropriate language. <laughs> Speaking of my mental health campaign, um, yeah, 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 I do. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. No, but I think. I th- no, but the thing is, I mean, somebody once said, when I saw today, Roger Ailes, the Fox guy, had just been booted out for sexual harassment, and he's thinking of appointing him as Undersecretary for Public Diplomacy. <laughs> and you think, is that fake news? But it came from that, the Hill people, who are usually kind of quite close to it. And 
you almost think it's like, this is why I'm sorry to go back to the reality TV thing. I mean, he, this is the guy, Trump, who the, week, the day after he won, he said, I'm the only guy who knows who the contestants are for Secretary of State. The contestants. <laughs> and he, he wheels them in. Mitt Romney, Giuliani. And then he thinks, no, they're not nearly offensive enough to get this guy Tillerson on the phone. Scary times. And, Bre- and Brexit. At least you can get rid of Trump. Brexit, we're afraid we can't get rid of it. Uh, but, but I think, you know, to go back to your um, point earlier, I mean, I think, I think reality TV is okay so long as you know the difference. Right. And I think, you know, I was on Strictly Come Dancing, but I know that's not the same as being... And I have yeah. a feeling that our problem with this is that he doesn't actually understand that distinction. I, I think it's absolutely right. He, and, and, nor, and nor do a lot of the people who voted for it. And I think what's incredible about Trump at the moment is the normal democratic theory is you stand for election, you get elected, and you say, right, I'm going to roll my sleeves up and do the things we got elected to do. The world is breathing a sigh of relief every time he says, no, I didn't mean that, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to lock Hillary up. I'm not going to build a wall that's going to be a fence. Uh, and, oh, thank God for that, I'm going to build a wall. And it's like, it just turns democracy upside down. And it's, I mean, I do feel sorry for these other leaders, because they're going to have to, Putin's absolutely on the rampage. Theresa May's, you know, new and finding a way. Angela Merkel's, I think, terrific, but, you know, fourth term, that's a big, big ask. You've got the situation in France where, honestly, do not rule out the possibility of Le Pen because this guy, Fion, he is going to be portrayed the same as Brexit was, the same as Hillary was, as the establishment. And he's, and, and he's very, very right-wing. He'll tack over there. A lot of the socialists won't vote for him. So I think he'll be okay, but, I mean, the fact that we're even having to worry that a very, very right-wing Frenchman will become president to stop this... And then Farage, I don't know if you've seen his Christmas card today, his Christmas card is him and Trump, right? And it says, looking forward to lots more fun in 2017. And what he he means by that is Le Pen. He means trying to wreck the euro. And Austria and all the rest of it is this. That's what he means by it. And we've just got to understand this is is really, really dangerous. So the big question is, how do you defeat someone like Donald Trump? Now or in the past? Now. Or, see, I mean, to, be fair, to be fair, I think Hillary, for the campaign, either of us would have advised her to fight based on experience, on stability, on continuity, on being serious, dangers in the world, how you meet them. He dragged her down. And also, I've got to say, Bernie Sanders <coughs> took it, helped him. Yeah. The, the whole thing about the whole thing about about Hillary as a creature of Goldman Sachs. Yeah. He started all that, and Trump just thought, oh, this is going well. And on he went. So I think you've got to be very, very careful. And, and, and don't forget, and honestly, every single person should this, tweet this every single day. He lost the popular vote by two and a half million. So Hillary actually did okay. But so how do you defeat him now? I think we've got to stop this normalization. I feel the same about Brexit. We've got to stop pretending that it's okay. We've got to stop pretending that it's going to be fine. I mean, both of them have got to fight it. Brexit and exit from the European Union, unless you have another referendum, it would be undemocratic for that to be blocked or to be frustrated in the long term. We are going to leave the European Union. At least with Donald Trump, you've got a chance in four years to defeat him. That's why I think Brexit is more dangerous in a way. But, well, I agree. But yeah, partly that. You are? No, but listen. Where is it saying the Constitution that if you lose a vote, you lose a referendum, you have to start believing the nonsense that people like you told? Where do, why do I have to believe? Why do I have to 
believe. And I think MPs, MPs who think, and I believe Theresa May is among them, who think as they go through these, these negotiations, this is a total disaster for this country. I think they have a responsibility to stand up and say so. And most of them, in my view, believe that. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Well. Given that that went well, let's take some more questions from the audience. Uh, <laughs> you can just have the house lights up a bit, and we'll take three or four. If I could ask for one sentence questions and one sentence answers from you both, okay. uh, if that's okay. So the chat. Well, don't forget, I've got my selection box. Oh, so Alison's. And what's that for? The best question, in our view. Okay, so the best <laughs> question, in, in, in your view. Um, yes, the chat right at the back there. Uh, what would you buy Corbyn for Christmas? What would you buy Corbyn for Christmas? Uh, strategy. <laughs> Never had to think of it. <laughs> <laughs> Just, um, I think it's really important something explains to him that having a public meeting with a thousand people is not the same as winning a general election. And I don't know how, how I could explain that to him. I don't know what person I get on. <laughs> well, you know, 400's good though, right? Um, yes, the lady over there. <laughs> so, in a nutshell, quantitative easing. Right, don't start turning on each other. We've had enough of that this year. Um, so, would, would they support more quantitative easing? I guess. Is that right? More printing of money. Chaps. Yes. <laughs> Come on, you want to be chancellor these <laughs> I think um, I think the quantitative easing was the right thing to do when the problem in the economy was a massive deficiency of demand. But it feels as though we may be moving into a different phase now, um, which is actually that um, for a range of reasons, including the slowness of this recovery, our underlying kind of capacity potential is quite weak. In those circumstances, I think simply doing more and more monetary policy isn't going to work. So it doesn't surprise me that the Fed, the Bank of England and now the ECB are pulling away from quantitative easing, not because it wasn't the right thing to do, but I think it may have run its course. Okay. Alistair? You don't know me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Ah, oh, yes, the chap there waving. Uh, what role can Tony Blair play in the fight against the hard Brexit? What role can Tony Blair play in a fight against the hard Brexit? It can even help to stop it. I mean, I, I, I feel like there are many of us saying, and, I, and I, listen, let me say, I really, really understand why it's so difficult for MPs, and I'm not an MP, uh, and I don't particularly want to be an MP, and I, but I feel, like, I feel that if you've got a voice, and you can raise it, and Tony Blair clearly has a voice and the ability to raise it, I think he will raise it to keep putting the arguments, and, and, and forcing people to challenge the nonsenses that we're having to believe and accept. I mean, the lady just talked there about trillions. When Philip Hammond stood up and talked about two trillion debt, I mean, in the past, that would have been, okay, that's your economic heading to the, the rocks, what are we going to do about that? 
It's all, I feel like we're, sort of, we're in a plane, we know it's going to crash, but we say, well, we've just got to carry on. And so I think, I think whether it can be stopped, I don't know, but I think he will play a role in, in challenging some of these nonsenses that keep being pushed our way. I have, I have, a, I have a, um, a different view from Alistair, um, which is not to say that I'm not really worried about him, the course we're on and what Brexit means. And personally, I think there being um, voices um, in the debate now talking about what the consequences could be and the choices which we face are, is a good thing. If Tony Blair is one of those voices, that's a, a good thing. Um, but uh, I think you have to be quite careful when um, out there a lot of people feel as though they um, voted for Brexit against um, the, the advice of um, the established order and the advice of um, um, uh, people who told them it would all be a disaster. I think you have to. I, I think people are going to need time to reach um, the conclusion that it's a disaster. If that's the, the right. Um, yeah, by the time she triggers Article 50, we're into these negotiations. We're out. There's no way back. So yeah. Well, I don't think um, you know. I, I think a lot of people voted the other way and I think that it's important that you that you respect and engage with their views rather than dismiss them. And I'm, I'm, not, not, I'm not saying I'm, you are, but I think something that there's a danger. If you just say um, look isn't the problem that Jeremy Corbyn's view of people is that when they vote the other way he just tells them that you're wrong. And, um, and I'm not sure whether that's always the best way to persuade swing voters to change their minds. It seems to me that there is there is in the in, in the Brexit debate there is 10% of people who think we should stay in come what may, and there is a group on the other side which is bigger than 10% who think we should leave whatever, and there's a big chunk in the middle, some of whom voted for in, some of whom voted for out, who are quite pragmatic. And you've got to engage pragmatically in, the, um, in that centre ground argument. I mean, you know, I- I'm sorry to sound more new Labour than you on this one. <laughs> Yes, the gentleman right down the barrel there. The really funny thing, I've got to tell you, though, that I... I've no, you did, don't. No, 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 wait, wait, wait. I did loads and loads of interviews about Strictly Come Dancing, but also a bit of politics over the last three months. And Katya would be there while I was doing them, because we were talking about... And she, she, she's really good. She can answer questions now on Brexit or <laughs> Corbyn or whatever. You know, you know she can say... Um, Jeremy Corbyn, I mean, you know, he's still got a lot to prove whether he actually can really show that he can be a leader of a, of, and a prime minister rather than just, you know, it's, it's all very well to have a thousand people cheering, you know, but she'd say, but he's got to listen to the swingers. <laughs> all the swingers in the marginal constituencies. I would say, well, no, it's not really swingers. It's about, they're like swing voters, but swingers, you know, because she's Russian, she doesn't always get the language. Swingers is, is kind of a different thing to swing voters. <laughs> like bluffers, really. And, um, so I spent a lot of time trying to explain to her that, you know, Jeremy Corbyn may not be appealing to the swingers, but it's not clear that me and Alistair want you either. <laughs> yes, the chap right down the barrel there. Um, how do you think, in a post-Iraq world, I'm thinking particularly of Syria and Aleppo, we really rebuild the case for liberal globally? I should rebuild the case for liberal interventionism, taking the context of the leper. In one sentence. In one sentence. <laughs> I, um, I uh, voted against um, the David Cameron proposal on Syria um, three years ago. Was that because you were whipped? Well, we were whipped, but I think it was the right thing to do to vote against. Because I thought that uh, at the time, um, David Cameron, and I think to be honest, um, <laughs> President Obama as well, had no plan, they had no strategy, nobody knew how this was going to work. Um, the thing which frustrated me was that David Cameron's attitude at that point was then, 
okay, well then, that's it then. And it's sort of, and, and disengaged. And I think that um, lots of us who voted against it at that time weren't voting against intervention. We didn't think the case had been made, and that they would come and explain what he was uh, trying to do. I think the same thing was true in, uh, in the autumn of last year as well, although that time he, um, he won the vote. I think if you're going to make the case for liberal interventionism, you've got to, have, you've got to be able to show people that you've got a plan and a strategy, and it's not just stage one, stage two, and stage three after that. You've got to, you know, it may not be always possible to get a UN resolution, but you need an international consensus. And I think um, the, the problem in Syria has been uh, the weakness of, um, of, of West leadership, and, but also that when people lost and had some setbacks two or three years ago, they then gave up. I think, you know, the other tragedy, I think, of what's happened in the, in the States is I mean, the, real, the real powers in there. I mean, Russia is actually a declining power in some ways, but he has real power in this stuff now. And I think we've allowed that. And I think the, real, the problem with Syria began, to my mind, when you can't have a situation where a respected Western leader, like Obama, says, if this guy uses chemical weapons, that is a red line, if he crosses that red line, then we will take the necessary action. And then it doesn't happen. And there's all sorts of reasons why it doesn't happen. And, and democracy is complicated. And it's true that the British parliamentary vote had an impact on the decision of America. No doubt about that. And, but I think where we go now, and this is why you brought to your question about how you deal with people like Trump, we, you, you do have to have relations with these people now. Because, and, and the, the whole thing, of the, the way that we can look at the pictures of Aleppo at the moment, and the, the extent to which we've become, we become normalised, become sensitised to them. And my worry, I, I fear, it's interesting that Ed just said there, you might not be able to get the United Nations resolution. The United Nations is actually becoming virtually dysfunctional. And the reason for that is because it's, because it's developed a system post-war. The, the big five, the idea of the permanent five and the Security Council, well, China tends to opt out. Russia now utterly, doesn't even hide the facts, utterly opposed to anything. Britain, in my view, post-Brexit, unlikely to keep its place because a lot of our power at the moment does come through the diplomatic actions that we take with the, with the rest of the European Union. So I think there's going to have to be a reframing of those international structures. And how that happens, what the framework becomes, I don't know. But the current, I feel that the current international structures are, are becoming completely dysfunctional. And the other thing that's happening is, is that non-democracies and pseudo-democracies now operating at an advantage to the democracies. That is a real danger. And I just don't think we are alive to the dangers of that. So it's a dark, depressing place, international diplomacy. It is. And, uh, um, let's... Not let that, so this room then is very dark. Ladies and gentlemen, it is time now. Sorry, we have no more time for questions. Oh, come on, one more. Yes, the lady down here. Thank you. Quick um, question, quick answer. That'd be please. good. Okay. There's a chocolate box here for you if it's good. Okay. He's so, winning so far. So it's for all of you, but for Ed in particular. I heard anecdotally, but I believe it's factually true, that the day after the referendum, the most Googled term was, what is the EU? So do you think people really knew what they were voting for? Did people know what they were voting for in the referendum? Yeah, I'm, going give, I'm going to give you the chocolates because you're nearer. <laughs> That's how politics works. <laughs> She's given to a neighbour. That's nice. I think, look, um, I was hugely frustrated um, with David Cameron and the strategy he took. 
Um, I think he, you know, everybody knows that things aren't going as well as they should in our country um, and, you know, and in our relations with the rest of the world and therefore in some sense our European uh, partners. And he basically went off and said, I've renegotiated it, it's all okay and you can just vote for the status quo. And most people who voted the other way voted because they thought actually David Cameron's status quo isn't good enough and I want change. And what that change was, and whether people would see it as a particular change to the EU or to a budget or to a policy, the choice was, as they are, or change, and they voted for change. And almost in a, any change is better than the status quo. And so and you don't need to have to know what the EU is to think that, I don't like things how they are, I want to vote for change. And so, um, and so in, the, in, in, in that context, you've got to be, in the end, Hillary didn't persuade people that she was going to change things, which is why she lost. And um, the Brexit argument, the, the, the Remain argument was a status quo argument, and that lost, because I think at the moment, people are very frustrated, they want things to change. And that doesn't have to mean they have to understand the institutions of the EU, or even what the EU is, they just want things to change. But doesn't that still mean it's the wrong answer? Well, I mean, no, well, it's um, in those in those circumstances, having a referendum is bloody stupid. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not like we didn't tell him. You see, my pop, you see, I think populism. People think populism is the voice of the people. I think that is I, populism to me is what happens when um, emotion trumps argument, and when detail and reason is defeated by anger and feeling. And I think that's what's happening in our politics at the moment, everywhere. Um, and I don't, I, I don't see at the moment how we're going to wrestle that back. That's why I do keep mentioning Angela Merkel. I mean, she's the one sort of big leader on the world stage who seems to still be able to command respect with that approach. Trump is the absolute extreme of this. Um, but so is Putin. But if, but if you take the problems Angela Merkel's had, the biggest issue in the Brexit vote and Donald Trump's biggest argument was all about immigration. Yeah. And in the immigration argument... Sorry? Well, and um, uh, having allowed a, um, a very large migration to occur for very understandable reasons given uh, domestic political context, I think that what people heard um, in the, um, the referendum is David Cameron saying, free movement's good for you. And I think most people think free movement, free market, free for all. I don't like that, and I want somebody to get a grip. And actually, the only answer, you know, I'm afraid migration is a massive economic and social and identity issue. You can see that shaping politics all around um, the developed world. It's, it's, it will be the biggest issue in the French election as well. And you've got three choices. You say, you know, uh, we're going to stick with the status quo because free movement is good for you. You can say, let's shut the borders and be autarkic, or you've got to say, let's find a way to manage this, this process and, and get control. And I'm afraid that um, that middle argument was taken by the, the outs rather than the in, and that was a terrible mistake. David Cameron should have been for managing migration, so should the Labour Party, and we yeah, were. Yeah, you know, it is LinkedIn that's popular, and outside of LinkedIn, it's very unpopular. No, no. We, we, Hold on, let me just say this. Come on, this is really important. The, 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 the thing about Cameron, the other, the other thing, you cannot turn around 20, 30 years of scepticism in the governing party yeah. by suddenly saying, I can persuade the country referendum. 
So, you know, he shouldn't have had the referendum, partly because he never and, laid the ground for the argument. And we didn't do enough to combat that threat. Right, so when we were in government. I agree, I agree. Well, that was a nice way to end it. <laughs> yes, it was. Well, <laughs> that's not fully the end. We're going to have a good old uh, dance and a sing song, uh, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not dancing. Firstly, do <laughs> thank. Uh, please do give it up for our two fantastic guests, Ed Balls and Angela Campbell. Alistair Campbell and Ed Balls there at the political party at the Leicester Square Theatre. Um, well, when I'm recording this, it was last night, but who knows, by the time you're listening to this, it could be ten years in the future, in 2026. God only knows what state we will be in by then. Um, but what a thrill it was to listen to, to both Alistair and Ed, their take on not just the year, but um, their time in government, their relationship with each other. Uh, there were genuine moments of, of magic last night. There were moments where you could... I was obviously sat next to them. You could... You, it was almost like recreating a, a kind of strategy meeting from, from a general election campaign. Seeing them together and seeing what that dynamic would have been like. Obviously, there would have been other people in the room at the time. But you got a glimpse um, of what what that government must have been like. And I agree with Alistair Campbell. I hope they do make that Class of 97 documentary and get Tony and Gordon and Peter Mandelson and, uh, and, uh, and Alistair Campbell around that table because it would be a phenomenal thing to see them reunited and effectively to, I suppose, make their peace, but that's for another day. Merry Christmas, um, <laughs> if you like Christmas. If you don't, I mean, I'm, I'll still wish you Merry Christmas in the hope that it will one day change your mind. Um, but as always, thanks for coming to the shows. Thanks for downloading this. I'm on tour next year, um, hopefully in a town near you, so check out my website, mattford.com, uh, and come and see me live. And uh, if you'd like to come down to the shows, of course, it's at the St. James Theatre, and you can get tickets on the website. I think most of the shows until the summer are sold out, but there's always uh, the chance you could get tickets at short notice or on Twitter. The first three guests of the year are Jess Phillips, Margaret Hodge, and Nicky Morgan which, given Leather Trouser Gate, um, is even more exciting now, in four months' time. Um, as always, thanks for downloading it. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. I get a real thrill from doing these, um, and it means a lot that you listen to them. So, I've rabbited on enough. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year.